3: Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're exploring the traditions and foods of Sunday Supper with The New York Times' Sam Sifton. He explains why he's a fan of the controversial beer can chicken and why he loves easy duck confit.
4: What I need is delicious duck right now. So I'm going to use a lot of olive oil. I'm going to slide my duck into that olive oil. I'm going to let it just bubble away on the stove until it's really well done and and has rendered all its fat. And then I can use it right away or uh, I can use it tomorrow.
3: Also coming up, we explore the flavors of Sardinian herb soup, And later, Adam Gopnik tells us why he thinks Montreal bagels are the best in the world. But first, we hear from reporter Amy Gutman about Cellar Door, a bar in London that was once an underground public loo. Amy, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. So this is a story about underground bars in London that are in abandoned Victorian bathrooms, among other things. So let's start with the Victorian London Where were these bathrooms? What were they like?
5: Well, these bathrooms were built all over London sometime after 1850. And it came about because in the mid-19th century, the Victorians used water closets, but there wasn't anything to use out in public. So these were designed to be very discreet. They were black wrought iron, which was typical of the era, with steps going underground to separate the bathrooms from civil society
3: so this particular place the cellar door where is it how do you access it just give us a visual image of going to the cellar door
5: the cellar door is a place that you could easily walk past it's just at the edge of the theater district sort of bordering covent garden and the strand there's a pink flashing neon sign outside that says cellar door and just below that pink neon sign is a set of stairs going down on the diagonal, taking you into a subterranean bar. There is a red velvet curtain, and I was immediately greeted by one of the co-owners, Gordon Anderson.
6: Good afternoon, good evening, welcome to the Cellador. We are at London's premier cabaret and burlesque cocktail bar.
5: So take us on a short tour. This won't take long, will it?
6: (laughs) (laughs) So here we go. Um, A couple of steps into the main bar. Um, And we have sort of, um, we say 1930s Berlin meets New York dive bar. Our bar staff are all kitted out in bow ties and jackets. We serve very much traditional cocktails. We sell snuff. Um, snuff is a tobacco substitute that is ingested through the nose. Um get some very funny looks when we serve it. Um, we have bar stools in the shape of lips. We have bar stools in the shapes of tongues. Everything's slightly different here to a normal bar.
3: Did he talk about the process from the beginning, having found this place, bidding on it, uh, coming up with plans for renovating it,
5: It definitely went through a process of adaptation. Now in terms of the way the building was transformed, there was a lot to figure out.
6: It was a gent's toilet up until about 15 years ago when the legislation for disabilities changed. And because it's a basement, people in wheelchairs could not gain access to the toilet. So the council moved their priority on providing public toilets up to street level. And so these basement toilets um, all started closing. So it was an asset for the council, but obviously nobody wanted a sunken basement toilet until um, particularly my business partner, Paul Kohler came along. He used to walk past it, it was boarded up, covered in graffiti and looking very sore. So he contacted the council and asked for permission to come and have a look. And as soon as we walked in and saw this place complete with its white tiled walls, its urinals and toilets, and Janice's office, I knew and he knew we both wanted to do something here.
3: So the big challenge here was taking a very small space and making the most of it. Exactly how did they do that?
5: They used the magic of mirrors.
6: So here we are inside the main bar. We are 54 square metres surrounded by mirrors to make it seem bigger. Some of the mirrors are faceted, so you don't see a direct image. You see a reflected image of a reflection, if that makes sense. We have all sorts of low-level lighting, coloured lighting. Lights which are set into the, the floor because that's where the gent's urinal trough used to be.
5: It's a little bit about smoke and mirrors. It's sort of like being in Vegas. You could easily lose track of time and have no idea what day it is.
3: So the obvious question is, is there a public restroom uh, in the cellar door? Because now they've gotten rid of the restroom to turn it into a pub. So do they actually have a bathroom there?
5: Well, that's the best part of this bar, Chris. The bathrooms. They had been on a trip, Paul and Gordon, to New York, where they went into a bar that had this optical illusion on the bathroom door. Once inside the bathroom, you could see outside (laughs) the door. So if you were inside the bathroom and didn't know, you would think that everyone could see you.
6: People who have not been to the bar before get very nervous. You know, people tend to crouch to cover whatever <laughs> might be on show. Um, we've had odd occasions when people are so drunk, they think they've locked the door, but they haven't. So
3: the, so the first time is, is kind of a shock. <laughs> so is this now spread throughout London? And there's hundreds and hundreds of these places being leased out?
5: There aren't hundreds and hundreds of these former public loos being transformed. Because again, A lot of these spaces are so tiny, and if the layout isn't right, it just doesn't work for anything. But it's enough of a trend that we're definitely seeing more than a dozen of these around the country being turned into interesting spaces. There's an art gallery, for example, there's a members club, there's a hair salon, you name it. I think in general, the whole notion of repurposing vacant spaces has taken hold in the UK, and more specifically with the use of former underground carriages from the London Tube. Many of these spaces are being used for restaurants, for shops, for startups, as workspaces, and they actually lend themselves quite well because there's built-in seating. So a lot of this really works, and I also think this speaks very much to the British spirit of make, do, and mend. Let's not just throw something out because it doesn't work. Let's actually turn this into something else that works.
6: I think repurposing a building is actually a good idea from an environmental perspective. Also, entrepreneurs are always trying to find something different for the public to do. The public are always trying to find something different to do. In this age of social media, you can't wait to tell your friends what you found that they haven't heard of.
3: So you visited there. Uh, I assume you bellied up to the bar and had a drink.
5: Well, Chris, I didn't want to disappoint you by not doing thorough research. So, mm. of course, I, I hung out with a lovely barman named Andras who made me one of their classic cocktails called London Calling.
1: London Calling is a very refreshing drink uh, muddled with grapes uh, and mint Also, it has a bit of refreshing lemon juice, um, honey syrup, and um, a very, I would say, tea-infused and botanically-infused gin, the Bifito 24.
3: So, okay, it's underground. It used to be a public loo. But after a few minutes, do you sort of forget all that? It's just being in a small bar? Or does this experience stay with you? It's really a very different place to be.
5: It's really a very different place to be, but, but that's more because of what the, the co-owners have created.
6: We're a fun place to come down and have a cocktail. It's a very easy place to start conversation, particularly with a backdrop of um very comical cabaret. We're now on, I think, our fifth marriage um, with got gay couples who've met here and married. Uh, We have straight couples who've met here and got married. In the evening, when we're full, you can't help but meet the person standing next to you.
5: In the UK, we don't talk to strangers. You don't pick someone up at the bar. And so being forced into the same space together in such a tiny space, it lends itself to a much more social environment, which is rather unique.
3: Amy, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Chris. That was reporter Amy Gutman. Right now, Sarah Malt and I are ready to solve your culinary questions. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. So, Sarah, you've been uh, at home, of course, doing probably more cooking than usual are you really sick of something at this point? You just can't do it anymore? you just at the end of the road?
7: Um, No, actually, because I've had to cook with whatever I can find. And, you know, so that's sort of challenging. I'm going places I haven't gone before.
3: Okay. And I have two pounds left of beef shoulder that I cooked in an instant pot. And I have about half a pound of beans that I also did in an instant pot with a nice kind of a tomatoey broth other than putting them together in a soup. Any other ideas?
7: Well, you could certainly turn them into a wonderful burrito filling, Mm. or you could make some open-faced pizzas. Mash up those beans and put them on Mm. top of a crisp tortilla, and then shred up that beef and put that on top, and then put on some cheese and let it melt. Yum.
3: Good idea. Let's get
7: started. Yes, let's do this. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is uh,
8: Dave calling from Beacon, New York.
7: Hi, Dave from Bacon, New York. How can we help you today?
8: I like to buy whole chickens and process them in, in the house. And I tend to take as many of the parts and use them as I can. I save the skin and I make schmaltz. And I always take the neck and save those for stock and ring tips and things like that. But I never know what to do with gizzards and hearts and livers. I'm just looking for some ideas so I'm not, not wasting those parts as well.
7: Good for you, and you shouldn't. Hearts and gizzards are terrific in stock. They add a ton of flavor. The one thing you don't want to add is liver, because liver will sort of make your stock muddy and bitter. And I've got other thoughts about the other ingredients too, but let's start with the liver. It's so tasty, just sauteed up all by itself. Do you like chicken livers?
8: I haven't experimented with them all that much personally.
7: Okay, well let me tell you two things you can do. One is Soak them in milk, you know, for a couple of hours, which uh, sort of takes out some of the bitterness. Get your pan good and hot, whatever pan you're going to use, with some oil in it. And then dip them in flour or a mixture of flour and cornstarch. Season them first. And then put them in the pan, knowing that you have to be careful because chicken livers spit like crazy. And then just cook them till they're nicely golden on all sides and then, you know, sprinkle them with fresh herbs or whatever you want. And that's just straight up fried chicken livers. Another thing you can do is saute them. This is French and Chris is going to say why bother in a minute. So um, I usually saute some shallots and add a little bit of port wine and then add that to the livers when I'm cooking them. Maybe a little chicken broth. Cook that down with the livers some thyme. Fresh thyme is yummy. And then you puree it, put it through a sieve, and then add some softened butter to it after it's cooled off, and then put it in the fridge. And you've got chicken liver mousse, which is so delicious on crackers and has a wonderful velvety texture. As for the hearts and gizzards, I would do the same, you know, dip them in flour, season them first, saute them. And the French often add them to salads, you know, in a like a frisee salad with garlicky lemon dressing. But now let's hear what Chris
3: has to say. I don't think it's silly, as long as you invite me over for dinner. Um, <laughs> I think that's a terrific recipe. I'm, I'm all for it, man. I would say dirty rice, liver, in, you know, a classic southern dish would be great. Um, there's also one of my favorite cookbooks, Mediterranean Street Food, by Anissa Elou. She has a recipe for Jerusalem mix, and she grills the chicken offal with chicken, and finish everything with a tahini sauce or hot sauce, and they call that Jerusalem mix.
7: So many possibilities.
3: But I, I think your idea of the terrine, the pâté, is great.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Those sound like some great options. Do they freeze, like if I want to hang on to them for a while? They do. Yeah.
7: Go have fun with those innards. Absolutely.
8: Thanks. Thanks a lot. I've got a lot of great ideas. Yep. To try. Bye-bye. Bye.
3: This is Mostly Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, Sarah and I are here to help. Give us a call anytime. The number, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
8: This is Daniel.
3: Where are you calling from?
8: I'm calling from uh, Virginia.
3: How can we help you?
8: It's actually a question I've been wrestling with for probably about uh, 10 or 12 years. One of the first things I learned to cook was scrambled eggs. And my mom taught me how to do it in this particular way that she herself claimed to have developed over about 30 years or so. You know, you scramble the eggs and you actually get the pan pretty hot with a generous amount of butter in there. And then when it comes time to actually tip the eggs in and cook them, it usually takes just about a minute because, uh, you know, you haven't scorched the butter, but it's probably just below browning. So the eggs cook really quick. When I moved out and went to college, I I saw my roommates were doing it low and slow. One thing I noticed about this method was that it often leaves a significant amount of eggs stuck to the pan. What is the
3: right way to cook eggs?
8: And I also want to make it clear that um, whatever y'all say, I'm not changing the way I cook eggs.
3: (laughs) Good for you. First thing is we have to announce you just won the Milk Street Recipe of the Month Award because you cook eggs the same way we do. You're absolutely right. want a lot of heat, cook it fast. The water in the eggs turns to steam if you do it that way. The only thing I would change, this is based on some research I did into some Spanish recipes, use oil, not butter. And the reason is oil gets hotter than butter, so it'll heat up faster and get to a higher temperature and it won't burn or brown and you will get more heat into the eggs faster, which means more puffing and fluffier eggs. Now the French would use the double boiler method right, Sarah? Uh, They cook it low and slow for 10 or 15 minutes, and you probably have some cheese in it and lots of cream, and you get those little curds, and it's velvety, and it is also delicious, but that's a very different recipe. But I'm with you. When I cook two eggs for myself, it's 20 seconds in an eight-inch carbon steel skillet. So, Sarah?
7: Well, no surprise here that I'm gonna disagree a bit, but I think actually both methods are right. I think that if you want a very custardy, sort of creamy texture, low and slow can help you get there. It's much smaller curds than doing it over a higher temperature. But I think either way, the main thing is when the eggs are ready, they're ready. Like for the high thing, if Chris went beyond however many seconds, then the egg starts to toughen and it's just not a good thing. So you need to do it quick and get it out. And the other thing I was gonna say about the egg sticking is when you do low and slow, you haven't sort of sealed the pan before you add the egg. You know, like when you make an omelet, one of the things you do is get that pan really hot and then add the oil and then add the egg. And the pan is sort of sealed so the egg doesn't stick. But when you're doing low and slow, there's no way the egg is not going to stick.
8: I think my mom read y'all's olive oil egg recipe and tried it out. I, mean, right. I very nearly disowned her over it, but she said it was very good. So, you know, maybe I'll have to try it.
7: Well, you can start with oil and finish with butter, you know. Why not?
3: Sarah's determined to get the butter into the eggs. (laughs) Yeah,
7: one way or another.
3: You can't go wrong,
8: yeah.
7: (laughs) All right, Daniel. Well thank you.
3: Yeah, good job.
7: Okay, thank you so much for
8: having
3: me, y'all. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with the New York Times Sam Sifton about his new book, See You on Sunday. That and more after the break.
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with the food editor of The New York Times, Sam Sifton. His new book is called See You on Sunday. Sam Sifton, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. Good to be here. Let's talk about you. Uh, when you were a kid, what kind of food was cooked? Who was cooking it? Uh, were there Sunday suppers in your household?
4: Uh, after a fashion, I think there were. I mean, I, I grew up in one of those classic New York upper-middle-class homes of the 70s and 80s where both my parents worked and worked extensively. Nevertheless, we tried, my mother tried hard and successfully to make sure that we ate dinner more often than not together. And then weekends uh, were spent perambulating all over the city, picking up different foodstuffs for amazing lunches and, and Sunday suppers, so traveling from... Little Italy for bread, to the Upper East Side for ham and and cold cuts, to Flatbush Brooklyn for special ginger beers, and we had a rattle old station wagon, and my dad drove around, and we picked up amazing food, and it was it was a great childhood for food.
3: As a restaurant critic, I, I think you and I actually went out to dinner once with David Carr, um, and I I just found that evening hard. So would you say that being a restaurant critic is sort of a sober profession, which is kind of my take, or is it more celebratory the way most people who are not restaurant critics would like to imagine it?
4: I think it's, I think it's a very difficult job to complain about because it's so marvelous to be afforded the opportunity to eat out five, six, seven times a, a week on the dime in the newspaper. But on the other hand, Again, really, again with the foie gras, again with the steak, (laughs) again with the fish and the brunez. I didn't really feel that it was a a grind. It was a job I I loved, although it was physically punishing. But nor did I think that it was simply a party. Uh, There's a job to be done, and the job is to figure out what it is that the chef and restaurant are trying to say um, and why it matters and, and how it fits into where we are in the culture right now and where we're going. And that part is really fun. That's a really interesting journalistic challenge that I liked rising to, even on those evenings when I thought, again with the ravioli, OK?
3: Let's move on to your book, See You on Sunday. You write, there is a sacramental element to Sunday suppers. I thought that was an interesting slash curious comment.
4: Well, I think it's true. I I see that in the setting of the table. I see it in the welcoming of anyone who wants to come. I don't know that it's strictly religious. I don't know that it's strictly spiritual. Um, It's probably just ritualistic. But I think toying with that idea of the sacrament, especially uh, when what you're doing is advocating for the service of food and wine, um, and the administration of love makes a, a certain degree of sense to me.
3: You also explained it this way. You said, quote, people are lonely. They want to be part of something even when they can't identify that longing is a need. What is it they want to be part of? Something bigger than
4: themselves. They don't want to be, I, I think people, all of us, all of us, even even the recluses, don't really always want to be alone. All of us long on on some level for some degree of connection, and that connection need not be a garrulous conversation. You know, I, I cooked in a church for for years for after service meals, and I served plenty of people who just were perfectly content to to come get their food, sit at a table with a bunch of kids talking and adults talking and not really say a word, but uh, accept a cup of coffee, enjoy the time and come back the next week. So I know it matters. And I think it's not a bad way of living your life, trying to feed others and help take away that sense of loneliness when it exists.
3: You also, uh, Marion Cunningham did this too. She liked to, re- to relieve the anxiety about failure in the kitchen. And you write, a failed dinner is as much as part of the journey as an exceptional meal Each takes its place to be remembered by all involved, according to its hilarity or excellence, which I kind of liked. So even if it doesn't turn out well, so what?
4: Yeah, I I think one of the greatest uh, Sunday suppers I've cooked in the last couple of years involved me taking receipt of some dried beans from a tiny farm in central Maine. And I made this, what I thought would be this perfect dish of, of Boston baked beans and I cooked these beans and I cooked these beans and I kept cooking them. And then my friends eventually came and we had to go into those beans. And, <laughs> and to this day, we call, my friend says, Hey, maybe we should have those Pebblers again. <laughs> so th- this idea that, you know, um, here was a meal that I served with intention and love to my family and friends, and the beans taste like little pebbles from the bottom of a stream because they just would not give up. Um, that's okay. I love that one of the joyous memories we can have is of that time that the beans just wouldn't soften.
3: you completely ruined my entire approach. My entire approach to cooking for others is 24 hours later, if the food's terrible, they'll t- totally have forgotten and what you're saying is, if it's bad enough, they'll never forget.
4: Yeah, I love for that. I love us. Listen, you have to embrace the spectacular failure. That's
3: true. Um, okay, let's get into some food. Um, Delaware fried chicken has bacon in it. I, I didn't know about this.
4: Well, there's. I use a little bacon to, to flavor the cooking oil. So, you know, it just seems to me, if you tell people like, we're gonna be cooking this fried chicken in lard, right. they they flip out, right? Or they or they don't like the lard they get in their supermarket because it's that commodity pork. But I do like a whisper of porkiness in my frying oil, frankly. I do too. And so what I do when I'm when I'm heating that oil, I just slip a piece of bacon in there or Smart. two pieces of bacon in there and let them get crisp. I can use that bacon for anything from a BLT tomorrow to a snack while I'm cooking all afternoon with, with the fried chicken.
3: Uh, okay, let's have a food fight. Beer can chicken. Uh, a friend of mine, Meathead Goldwyn, you probably know who he is. Here we go. He's going to yell at you about beer can chicken because yep. the beer never gets to the boiling point, and therefore this whole idea of steam and flavoring the bird and keeping it moist. is. He he calls a chicken a beer cozy because it's a 38-degree, four pounds of beer cozy, you stick over your can of beer. Yeah. And Sam Sifton, what do you say?
4: Well, I don't pick fights with guys named Meathead. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I'll say this. I never said that liquid was going to uh, boil. I do think that there is a degree of humidity that comes off there. I, I've cooked enough of these things to know that liquid is steaming when the bird is done, but I think as important as anything else is the fact that you're cooking the thing vertically so and, vertical no, and no part of it is touching a pan. Right. Well, no exterior part of it is touching a pan and therefore you're getting amazing browning yeah. and you end up with this super, super crisp skin. And I use a kind of version of that white barbecue sauce that you see in Northern Alabama to a paint on there at the end. And so I end up with this
3: beautifully lacquered bird that I've Roasted vertically. Uh, that white barbecue sauce. I remember years ago that recipe. That is, it's it sounds terrible, but it is one of the best things in the world. Yeah, I mean, one
4: of the more underrated condiments in American cooking is mayonnaise. Frankly, right. because that fat just melts so beautifully onto meat. So, in the case of beer can chicken, it provides this sort of gloss on, on the exterior. With salmon, I take mayonnaise and mustard and make a, a mixture and just spread that on the exterior of the, of the fish and put it in a hot oven and it melts beautifully. I've done that with bluefish and it's it's just incredible. Little mayonnaise in your coleslaw obviously is a great thing. Mayonnaise on a piece of bread is a good thing.
3: <laughs> Sounds like the cat in the hat. Yeah. I think you could probably go on for pages. I could. Um, easy duck confit. What's an easy duck confit?
4: Well, duck confit, right? Like if we're really going to make it, we've Patted these things dry. We've covered them with spices. We would have allowed them to air dry for a day. We cook them in, a, in an incredibly low oven for a very, 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 very long time, rendering the fat super carefully. And then, you know, allowing the duck legs to sit in the hardening fat beneath our uh, workshop bench in, in <laughs> France in the cool <laughs> air until we're ready to, to eat them. It's a way to preserve. Duck in a complicated environment that's super beautiful that none of us happen to live in. So, what I need is delicious duck right now. So, I'm going to use a lot of olive oil. I'm going to slide my duck into that olive oil. I'm going to let it just bubble away on the stove until it's really well done and and has rendered all its fat. And then I can use it right away
3: or uh, I can use it tomorrow. Either way. You talk about the East Coast Grill in Cambridge uh, here in Boston. Chris Schlesinger founded it, and uh, you mentioned his cornbread. And, and I remember his cornbread as being very sweet and, and almost like a dessert. You have fonder memories of it than I do. Could you just talk about sweet, cake-like cornbread versus oh, yeah, like, I've what got, I would call the real thing? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been
4: lit on fire for this recipe. Right. But as a you know, as a child of Brooklyn who made his way to Cambridge to go to college, I worked at the Harvest Restaurant. I revered Chris Schlesinger and spent all of my money at the East Coast Grill. And the cornbread that was served at the restaurant, you know, I've talked to Chris about this over the years. It's essentially the recipe that's on the back of the Jiffy <laughs> cornbread box made uh, a little more soigner And I had um, frozen Corn kernels or, or fresh corn kernels to the to the mix as well. Uh, it does come across a little sweeter than the kind that you ate in the deep south at the correct place, but it's a damn good cornbread. And you know what? He couldn't take it off the menu for a quarter century, so right. it's pretty good. So you're standing by it. I am standing
3: by it. Okay. So, of all the Sunday suppers you've done, is there one that just uh, sticks with you for some reason emotionally? Boy,
4: I got to tell you, Chris, I think these meals stick with me, each one in different ways, but you're putting me on the spot, so I'm going to remember a particular evening that saw my whole family, my brothers, my mom, our neighbors, the the whole chosen family and actual family together. And I started it out with a mess of clams that I cooked um, in a big steamer, and just to have everyone... Uh, old people, young people, everyone kind of picking out of that same pot and dragging these steam clams through some broth and, and drawn butter and just laughing and talking with one another in true fellowship um, is something that will stick with me always.
3: Sam Sifton, thank you for coming on the show and it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Likewise, Chris. Thanks for having me. That was Sam Sifton. His new book is called See You on Sunday, a cookbook for family and friends. Sifton talks about riding around New York in an old station wagon shopping with his dad for the best ginger beer in Flatbush or cold cuts on the Upper East Side. And I agree, shopping should be a family ritual. I buy fish at the courthouse market, vegetables at Russo's, summer produce at farmer's markets in Maine, Vermont and Cambridge, Potatoes at Sheldon's Farm, meat at Savonor's, and apples at Saratoga Apples. These days, when travel is limited, I've come to realize that shopping is really about the people you meet. Lesson learned, I'll never complain about shopping again. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Sardinian Herb Soup with fregula and White Beans. Jam, how are you? I'm doing great. You were in Sardinia not too long ago. And before we get to the recipe, just tell us a little bit about Sardinia and Sardinian cooking.
0: Yeah, so Sardinia is an island off the western coast of Italy. And, you know, you think island, you think seafood. And surely there's an abundance out there. Well, in Sardinia, the cuisine grew up without seafood. And that's because years of invaders drove the population inland. Hmm. For safety. And so their cuisine evolved without seafood, relying on produce, a little bit of meat, fair amount of dairy and grains. And so
3: the recipe that really was your number one
0: find in Sardinia was? Well, it's pronounced serbuzo, which is an herb-based soup with a little bit of pasta and a little bit of meat. And what I loved about this is it's a big, bold bean soup that relies on fresh herbs, tons of fresh herbs, in fact. And some varieties have as many as 14 fresh herbs hmm. to build big, bold flavor. And that's what just really impressed me.
3: So this concept of a lot of herbs is something we found across the world, right? Not just in the Southern Exactly,
0: area. exactly. You know, in the United States, we think of herbs as a finishing touch, a garnish, uh, something for a little bit of flavor. But elsewhere in the world, and including in this soup, they're used by the fistful, and they add tons of fresh, vibrant flavor, and that's what we love about them.
3: So is there anything particular about how you make this soup that's unusual? It's
0: actually, it's a very simple bean soup. The beans, usually they start from dry beans. They soak them over the night. They cook them with a little bit of pancetta. And adding tons of these herbs and greens, many of which are foraged in Sardinia, and they use a little bit of fregola, which is the pellet-shaped pasta of Sardinia. And that not only adds a nice chewiness to the soup, but it also helps thicken the soup a little bit. They finish it off with a little ricotta salada, and that's about it.
3: Any substitutions we had to make from, well, you f- know, from the foraged 14 herbs, yeah, maybe? 14
0: yeah. foraged herbs is a bit much to ask of an American home cook. So we narrowed it down to kind of what we felt were the most essential and, frankly, the easiest to access here in the U.S. We brought it down to parsley, arugula, and tarragon. We also added fennel seeds, which is not a traditional ingredient in Sardinia, but wild fennel is, and we wanted to replicate some of that flavor.
3: So, J.M., thank you. A Sardinian herb soup with fregola and white beans. Easy recipe and tons of flavor from the fresh herbs. Thank you. Thank you.
0: You can get this recipe for Sardinian herb soup with fregola and white beans at MilkStreetRadio.com.
3: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik on why he thinks the Montreal bagel is better than any other. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil— and since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code ISTANBUL. This is Milk Street Radio, I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Malt and I will be taking a few more of your cooking questions.
7: Welcome to Milk Street, who's calling?
9: Hello, Christopher and Sarah. This is Deb from historic Williamsburg, Virginia.
7: Well, hello, you lucky person living there. How can we help you?
9: So I have a couple of basic questions regarding buttermilk biscuits and buttermilk scones. And I know that Christopher is a huge fan of buttermilk biscuits, so yep. I figured perhaps you two could answer my question for me. Sure. I really like the recipe where you melt a stick of butter and then you put it into a cup of buttermilk and then you mix that loosely with the dry ingredients and you use it as a drop biscuit for buttermilk biscuits. Mm -hmm. My first question is, could I use the same recipe for doing a laminated sheet-style biscuit? Instead of dropping it, could I actually fold it and roll it out?
7: No. No. First of all, you don't want the butter melted. You need it to be layered in there. The thing that happens... In any laminated dough is when the heat hits it, the butter gives off steam, which is what gives you that rise. So you don't want it melted.
3: The basic buttermilk biscuit recipe usually is two cups of flour and seven tablespoons of fat, whether it's butter or Crisco or a combination. And you put in a food processor mm-hmm. and when the butter's very cold and you work it in like pie pastry. As Sarah said, that'll give you lamination. You get layers in your biscuit. A little bit. But James Beard had a very famous uh, cream, cream biscuit, biscuit. recipe, and I've made that many times, where he just uses heavy cream, and that'll give you a very soft, non-laminated biscuit. Sort of more dense crumb. It's quite different. Either works fine. If you want the laminations, like okay. when you pull the biscuit apart and there's sort of layers, you have to have cold butter.
9: Mm-hmm.
7: Yeah, that's it.
9: Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So because I make buttermilk biscuits, my husband decided he wanted to bring some treats into work, and he decided I should be making scones instead. So I took a look at the Milk Street Radio scone recipe, and I recognized the technique where you have the butter cold, you right. shave it um, and make it go into the flour. But it doesn't seem like that recipe actually calls for any lamination at all. It's almost like it's a drop biscuit recipe. So the question is, could I use my melted butter in the buttermilk and use that for a scone recipe?
7: Sure. But you'll, again, have the more dense crumb, more cake-like. Well,
3: it's an interesting question because if you go to England and, you know, have tea at one of the incredibly expensive hotels Hotels. like Brown's, I mean, they give you these little tiny American biscuits and they call them scones. So I think the huge scone—
9: Okay. (laughs) Are you talking
3: about the American scone?
9: Yeah, so the American scone. But I do agree because scones started in England right. or Scotland. And then supposedly when they came to America and the South, they just called them biscuits instead. Right. But they're actually the right. real scones. Right. So I am talking about the Milk Street Radio scone, which yeah. was ginger and chocolate. That That's recipe, a good one. Yeah. you basically put the cold butter in. Right. So I'm wondering, since that one's not laminated, it's almost like a drop biscuit. Could I just melt the butter and put it in buttermilk and use that for the... Ginger
3: scones. You can, but don't forget that recipe came from Tandem Bakery in Portland, Maine, and she loves fat in her scones. So just make sure you have the right fat content.
9: 18 tablespoons. I remember. Excellent. That makes it so much easier for me. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Love the show. I saw you, Christopher, in Washington. You were great. Thank you very much.
7: Thanks
3: for calling. Thank you. This is Mill Street Radio. Have a cooking question? Sarah and I can probably answer it. Please give us a ring at 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843 or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
7: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
3: Hi, this is Kevin from Tacoma, Washington.
7: Hi, Kevin. How can we help you today?
3: Well, first of all, I just want to say it's super cool to be on the phone with you. So thanks for taking my call. Uh, Pleasure. Thank you for calling. So my question is my uh, father-in-law is a hot sauce fiend, but he's on a medication now where he can't have nightshades. So I was wondering if you
6: guys had any ideas as to how to make a nightshade-free hot sauce.
7: Well, here's the thing about hot sauce. What was his favorite hot sauce, or was it any hot
3: sauce? He eats a lot of Mexican food. Okay. Uh, Tappetito, like Mexican hot sauce.
7: And do you know what chili that was based on? No. I don't. Okay, that's fine. Was it acidic as well? Yes. Was it a little bit sweet as well, or just acidic?
9: A little bit sweetness, but mostly acidic.
7: Okay, because those are the three things. I mean, mainly it's the chili, but then, you know, generally there's a fair amount of acid and sometimes there's a fair amount of some kind of sweetness, like sriracha I find so much sweeter than others, but people love it. There are other things that are hot, such as black and white peppercorns that you could consider, you know, crushing and adding with some vinegar of some kind um, and a little bit of sugar. Wasabi is very hot. The powdered stuff, which actually isn't true wasabi, which is a rhizome, that's very expensive and hard to find. But the stuff we get in sushi restaurants, that powder is very hot. You just combine it with some liquid and more obviously than you would just to make the paste. Hot mustard, a famous brand, is Coleman's. You know, like they use sometimes in Chinese restaurants, the hot mustard could be the base of a sauce. You're again, talking about
3: the powdered mustard. The
7: powdered, excuse me. That is absolutely what I meant. And, you know, again, adding some acid and some sugar sort of playing around with the different combinations. And then, of course, there's always ginger, which is quite spicy and hot all by itself, grated up and combined with some yeah. acid. So I would sort of play around with those and maybe some of them in combination, Chris, any thoughts?
3: I think Sichuan peppercorns, I don't know if you mentioned those. They're but more those,
7: tingly. They're not hot.
3: Oh, sure. Yeah, but tingly lives right next door to hot. They're, okay. they're neighbors. Okay. I mean, that may do give you that sensory I find them, experience. You know, it's
7: funny. People said that before, and I find Sichuan peppercorns more aromatic than anything else and floral.
3: But no, no, I think you're right. Wasabi, horseradish.
7: Oh, horseradish is another one. Another one. one.
3: That can be pretty hot. Yeah, sure.
7: combine that with a little vinegar and a little sugar. Although I do
3: find if you let it sit too long, it loses its Well, you're talking, about,
7: you're talking about fresh horseradish. Yeah. If you get the bottled stuff, yes. that's plenty hot. You could right. add just a little more vinegar to it yeah. to up that, the, and a tiny an pinch of sugar it. to make it come alive.
3: I think all those are good suggestions. Right. All
7: right, thanks so much. Thanks for calling, Kevin. Thanks for Kevin. calling, Kevin.
3: Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners.
9: Hi, my name is Anita and my cooking tip is about fond. Particularly the fond that forms on the side of a pan as a sauce or soup simmers and reduces in volume. To retrieve that concentrated goodness, turn off the heat and put a tight fitting lid on your pan. Wait 10 minutes and the buildup of steam in the pan will have loosened the residue on the sides of the pan And you can scrape it off with a rubber spatula and stir it into your sauce or soup. Thank you.
3: If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash tips. Next up, it's regular contributor Adam Gopnik.
2: Adam Gopnik, uh, what's on your mind this week? Do you know where I come from, Chris? Do you know what my hometown is? Canada. Canada is my home country. Well, that's a, that's a, <laughs> really it's a big broad, place. I don't know. Toronto? I don't know. I'm not sure. No, I'm a Montrealer. I come from Montreal. Ah, okay. And Montreal is one of the most winning cities, famous for its hockey team, famous for its French cuisine, and famous, perhaps above all, for its bagels. Huh. And as I'm sure you're aware, there is an ongoing dispute of an enormously heated kind about the competing features of New York and Montreal bagels. Were you aware of this?
3: No, I'm completely flat-footed and surprised.
2: Oh, I'm delighted because then I get to introduce you to this (laughs) great debate. Montreal bagels came to Montreal sometime right after the Second World War when immigrants coming from Romania, I believe, and other places brought their bagel making techniques to Montreal. And the Montreal bagel is significantly and wonderfully different from the New York bagel. The New York bagel is a big, boring, puffy piece of bread, and the Montreal bagel is a sweet, boiled, and very Hmm. importantly, wood-baked, that is to say baked in a wood oven, Hmm. low-calorie delight that manages to combine two of, I think, everyone's favorite flavors, smokiness and sweetness, in one simple piece of carbohydrate. And is invariably decorated, but densely decorated, not with a kind of half-hearted flick of the wrist, densely decorated with either sesame seeds for white bagels or poppy seeds for black bagels. Um, the Montreal bagel is baked at two very particular places. The saint Vieter Bagel Bakery, which is famous for being open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. The other wonderful bakery is the Fairmount Bagel Bakery. I make regular trips to Montreal just in order to bring home bagels. But there is now a war underway within Montreal about the future of the bagel. As I say, the supremacy of the Montreal bagel to the New York bagel is something that I have tried to point out again and again to my friends. I have a good friend, a fellow named David Remnick, whose name you may have heard, um, who persists in the belief that a New York bagel is actually a bagel. And I have tried to explain to him through the evidence that a New York bagel is, is, as I say, just a kind of puffy pretzel, whereas a Montreal bagel is the real thing. The problem is that there's a new bylaw just brought in in Montreal to ban wood-burning ovens from the entire city on pollution grounds. The great question then becomes, Can the Montreal bagel survive the loss of the wood-burning oven? How essential is the wood-burning oven to the matchless effect of the Montreal bagel? There is a worrying precedent in Montreal cuisine that suggests that maybe it will turn out to be utterly essential, and that is the other great Montreal delicacy, smoked meat. You have heard of smoked meat, Mm -hmm. surely, Chris. That's the Montreal version of what we call pastrami. The famous temple of Montreal smoked meat is a place called Schwartz's and what they discovered um, when they finally started cleaning the place, when it was bought by a syndicate of distinguished people who loved it, including Celine Dion, is that in plain Yiddish, it was the schmutz (laughs) that caused the savor. It was the accumulated schmutz in the smokehouse that gave it its distinctive taste. And now, excellent though it is, I don't think Schwartz's smoke meat is as good as it once was, minus that accumulated schmutz. Hmm. So I am in a state of some panic.
3: Well, I mean, the, the alternative is you move the bakery to the suburbs, right, where the
2: law no longer applies. Yes, but part of the joy of the Montreal Bagel is the fact that it's baked on residential streets. Move it to the suburbs, you have to ship it in to the center of town. And you lose exactly that element of it. I'm puzzled about it, actually, a little bit because, as you know, as somebody who loves Paris, my other favorite breakfast toast is uh, pain poilin. I was
3: just going to mention poilin, actually, because Mm -hmm. the poilin bakery in the 6th, which has a wood-fired oven downstairs you've probably been to— They actually bake very little of their goods there. It's mostly done out near the airport. Exactly. So the Poilin bread is made in a pristine, modern, you know, factory. But the Poilin store, they'll give you on the tour of the 14th century ovens, right?
2: Exactly. Poilin has made the compromise. They have on the Rue de cherche indeed in the 6th, they have a wood-burning oven, but it is, what shall we call it, a Potemkin oven, <laughs> as in a Potemkin village. It's there for show right. and to, for the tourists, and the vast quantities of pain Paulin are made in a semi-commercial bakery, with the wonderful recipe, out farther. This may be the fate of the Montreal bagel, to be fabricated elsewhere and then sold in town with a little bit of smoke, sort of applied ceremonially to make us continue to believe in it. Perhaps that's the fate of all breads, as there is a fate of all men. I hope that isn't the case, but certainly you're absolutely right. Paulin is an indicator of what the future might bring for the Montreal bagel.
3: So let's see if I got this right. Your staff writer for a magazine called The New Yorker (laughs) and you're going after the New York bagel as some second-rate piece of bread that doesn't even qualify as a bagel, you
2: like tilting at windmills, evidently. I love tilting at windmills. Don Quixote's my middle name. I've been (laughs) tilting at windmills my whole life. My problem, Chris, is that the windmills have always won. Have you ever thought that maybe
3: you you actually don't want to win?
2: Ah, there's a deep reflection. Of course not. Those of us who are of a, what shall we call it, a contemplative turn of mind, No, we would rather think and lose than uh, confront actuality and win. So, Adam, thank
3: you. You clearly find the New York bagel, a travesty of baking, uh, and the real deal is in Montreal as long as it lasts. Thank you, Adam. As long as it lasts. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. Adam Gopnik prefers bagels from Montreal over New York, which begs the question about whether New York City water is the secret to great bagels. Here are the facts. New York City water contains relatively small natural deposits of calcium and magnesium, making New York City water some of the softest in the country, which they say is good for bagels. Plus, the pH of the water, the acidity, is around 7.2, which is ideal for fermentation. Unfortunately, side-by-side tastings have shown that when using the same recipe, water quality makes little difference. Others say that boiling the bagels first is actually the key to a New York bagel, not the water. So maybe it's the water, but maybe New Yorkers just know how to make really good bagels. Of course, if you're from Montreal like Adam Gopnik, you would politely disagree. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening.
9: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street, in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Claff. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sidney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by 2 Crew. Additional music by George Bernal-Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.